You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Uh oh, guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? Huh? Anybody? Mike, 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 Mike. What day is it, Mike? <laughs> Welcome to another episode of the Earth Station One podcast. That's right, folks. We are back and we are going to be doing another look at our countdown for Halloween. And Mr. Mike, what do we have this time? We are talking all about, we're going back, back, back. We're going a hundred years back to- Oh, so the age uh, of Mark Maddox. Got it. (laughs) To take a look at uh, the OG or OD, the original vampire- uh, or the OV, is that right? OV. Yes. Yes. Count Orlock in Nosferatu. Uh, silent movie, uh, 100 years old. Um, the ESO movie crew has not gone that far back ever in our history. So it should be really interesting to uh, see uh, what our thoughts are of this 100-year-old movie, whether it still holds up. Oh, very much so. And this movie is a true classic and yeah spoiler it does still hold up (laughs) oh it completely holds up (laughs) and it's hard to find though truthfully um right now if on streaming and or on cable on demand and stuff so there's a couple places that had it i know amc plus is where i got to see it yeah that's the that's probably the best version if you're streaming it um and uh if you're you know want to purchase it and you can get it at a pretty good price i think 15 bucks max is the uh blu-ray and or dvd of the uh kino lorber copy which is the restored beautiful print so that's the one i watched so it's it's pretty available and it's you know it's free use a public domain so there are other versions like you can find it on youtube you can find it on other streaming services like Tubi and all that kind of stuff. But um, I, I strongly recommend either AMC Plus, you can also watch Interview with the Vampire there, or <laughs> and Better Call Saul. And, uh, um, or you can, um, you know, just get the DVD, uh, the Blu-ray, because uh, that's, it's, it's pretty awesome. It definitely is. I definitely would recommend watching it, folks. We'll talk all about it, though, later tonight. And we got a great crew here. And, of course, you know, this is Mr. Mike's favorite time of the year. You're, like, glowing right now because it's Halloween. You know, you have the scent of it's pumpkin all that, it's spice all, that pumpkin all over spice. your beard. Yeah. <laughs> it's got all that pumpkin spice. It's all over your beard, I could tell. So, it's you know, I think it's a cool thing. And it's, you know, you walk in, there's coolness in the air. And... You know, also, folks, you know, there's a lot of great things going on. And, you know, people are slowly recovering from the hurricane in Florida and the hurricane that hit Puerto Rico. And, man, it's just it's just crazy, you know, everything with the weather. And, you know, we just got to look at the positive things. That's what we're trying to do here at our station one. So 
Definitely. Let us know what's going on with you guys. Please write us feedback at earthstation1.com. Definitely would love to hear from you. And also, if you get a chance, please, you know, watch our videos and subscribe to our channel up on YouTube. That's right, folks. Earth Station One is now up on YouTube. You can see these lovely kissers weekly on Earth Station One up on the YouTube. And you know what? We talk. We have fun. Count, Count and, Orlock has nothing on us. Oh, God, no. No, <laughs> we don't even have to have tape behind our ears and everything. It's pretty awesome. So it's a great thing to do, and it's a great time to be able to be part of Earth Station One. So definitely subscribe. Give a thumbs up. Let people know what you think. And you know what? Just don't, you know, Ashley's dad was the only one who's left feedback so far on the pages. So it'd be great to actually uh, have other people do that also. So it'd be kind of cool. So definitely check us out. And you know what? While you're checking us out, if you have some extra shekels in your pocket and want to help help save the ESO network, subscribe to our ESO network Patreon. That's right, folks. You can give as little as 25 cents a week and you too can help subscribe and get really cool swag you could get podcasts early like these and you could also you know get exclusive podcasts and you know what in november earth the eso rants and raves is coming back to our patreon i'm very happy to announce that Ooh. so we got some good stuff going on i think star girl is going to be first on our list since we haven't really talked about it on this show wow, and, you, but, i didn't know you were caught up oh god yes i've been caught up um since middle of season two and so this is it's been a great season three has been great so far and i'm trying to guess where they they're going to be going with it (laughs) so should be very interesting to see and i think that'll be a good rant and rave to come back about and maybe we'll have somebody sit in with us you never know maybe it just might not be mike and mike raving or ranting about a certain show you never know what can happen on ESO. That's the great thing about it. And you too can help subscribe to Patreon by only going to patreon.com slash ESO network. Help us out. We would really appreciate it. Also, speaking of appreciation, you know what? Fall is here and in mid, you know, this is mid-October already, folks. We have great sunglass weather. It's great. It's crisp outside. You want to go play in the leaves or you want to go on a nice hike. And you know what? Sunglasses are really, really important for that. And Tifosi Optical has some amazing sunglasses that you can custom make. You can get prescriptions. You can get your own colors that you want. You can get your own frames that you want. Folks, there's so many choices you have at Tifosi Optical. And a great choice over there is getting a 10% off discount by putting in the coupon code or station one. Check it out. 10% off an order. That's not a bad deal, folks. Not just one pair of glasses, your whole order. So check it out, tofosioptics.com. And now we're here returning to the show. Baker Stoker is back. Welcome, sir. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's a great occasion to be here talking uh, Nosferatu, their hundredth, while I'm a hundred. You know, yes. Spreading the word on Bram Stoker's 125th. So, uh, you know, <laughs> double centuries here, guys. <laughs> well, it's we definitely appreciate you, and we'll take the time because I know you're a busy man normally, but I imagine October, this time of year, you are really stacked and busy. Uh, yeah, this is this is like the Super Bowl in the Stoker family. Every October, you know, <laughs> we, we, we kind of wrap it, we rank it up a little bit. Uh, find out where the best place is to be on Halloween weekend. Who's going to provide me the, the best resources and the best visibility and want me the baddest. 
So uh, yeah, it all starts out here in, in California at the moment, doing the 125th tour here and heading back east soon and then heading to Dublin, Ireland for Halloween weekend and places oh, in wow. between. So great, great to be here with you guys, though, to chat Nosferatu. Nosferatu. So the movie 1922 was made. Um, now, um, forgive me, but um, it, it seems like I don't know. I'm kind of curious as to how your what your feelings are on this. The the reputation is, is that your family wasn't particularly happy with this movie and almost destroyed every single copy of it. Well, that's it, it's an interesting subject uh, within the family. But, you know, I, I'd say, first of all, um, all one of these things, all, all's well, it ends well. You know, I'll, I'll take <laughs> you right. through a couple of steps in that, um, you know, Florence, when Bram Stoker died, he did go to great lengths to protect the dramatic rights of Dracula. He had a stage reading at the Lyceum Theater eight days before the novel came out. Uh, he he had to cut and paste a couple of copies of Dracula to make his one script that he passed around to all the different uh, stagehands uh, who who just you know humored Bram and said yeah we'll read this when you it was just a stage reading it was not a performance although there were three people in the audience they had to have a playbill you know these were the rules of the Lord Chamberlain's office at the time to protect the dramatic rights of your novel and Bram did that and he did it to some of his other novels as well being a stage manager he knew what was up and how to do that so luckily he protected that because Michael when he died he didn't get any inheritance from Henry Irving he didn't get any pension from Henry Irving so the last you know 10 to 12 years of his life were pretty rough he didn't have much of an income he was making it off of you know royalties of book sales and you know, they're not great nowadays, but they were worse even back in those days. <laughs> I was going to say, Dracula wasn't like a huge, like, bestseller. Uh, it wasn't on the New York Times list, right? No, I mean, it did have picked up some good momentum. And, and uh, you know, it got it got greater later on when when the book was adapted onto stage and onto the screen. But not during Bram's life. It wasn't a big money earner. So, sadly, he left his wife, you know, with, with a decent income, you know, a, a, an estate. It had some value, and but they didn't own a home. They were renting homes, and she did have a son who was a chartered accountant, so he made some money. He could take care of mama. But the, the thing is, she she was working very hard with Hamilton Dean, and then later Dean and Balderston, to turn Dracula into a stage play. Uh, and so remember, 1912 was when Bram died. She started all this effort in 1922, so 10 years later, she did get some things going with stage adaptations, and she did get some money. When it finally, 1924, went on stage, and then 1927, when it came to America. So the dramatic rights were picking up some momentum. And, you know, we had uh, Raymond Huntley playing Dracula, of course, Bela Lugosi later on. But in the background of all this, you know, is obviously the film from Germany, from Prana Films, Nosferatu, that in 22 came out. And it actually came out and freely said, you know, openly adapted by Bram Stoker's Dracula. And they didn't make any effort to contact Mrs. Stoker. They didn't make you know any effort to hide the fact that this was a, an adaptation. And it's not the first time they did it. They actually did it um, earlier with Robert Louis Stevenson's, one of, one of his books. That's right. Um, uh, they did a Jekyll and because uh, Murnau did a Jekyll and Hyde. I don't think it exists yeah. anymore, but uh, I don't think that, I think that film's been lost. But yeah, they did do that with uh, that one too. 
which was also, you know, and I use the term pirated, you know, you know, in a, in a nice <laughs> sure, way. It, it, sure. it, it is what it is. You know, they didn't get a license. But you also have to realize back in the day, there was not a lot of licensing of books to turn into films going on. So sadly, we don't really know what their perspective was. I, I have been working with a, um, a German film historian, uh, Holger Mandel, who has, has dug like crazy throughout German film archives, because like me, we want to know, you know, the truth. You can't handle the truth. We want to know the truth. Um, <laughs> and, and so it was, it was like non-existent. Obviously there were fires, there was bombing. Who knows why that side of the court records don't exist, but we have no record of, of they said, well, we tried to get hold of Mrs. Stoker, but you know, she never answered the, the emails or, you know, or she didn't show up for the meeting. We don't know if they were just being, you know, totally blasé about it, or if there was just, you know, angst between Germany and England, you know, leading, you know, after World War One, um, you know, what, what, what was the, what was the karma? May, may, we don't know. What we do know is, and luckily, Mrs. Stoker did go and approach the Independent Society of Authors in London. And her husband was a member of that society. So she went to them saying, look, you know, Bram was a member, you got to help us here. You know, th this is what you're in existence for, although they haven't had filmed the copyright infringements at that point. But it's like you're a legal mm -hmm. society. This is what you do. And, and it was I I've seen the letters back and forth because they exist in the British Museum Library, which is which is great source of records for this. So I can I did my research for this this article my son and I wrote for Screen Magazine way back in May. But it was one sided. And even though I had the German fellow friend of mine, Mandel, over there trying to find his side, we couldn't. He could find the British side as well. And what we found was, number one, it was very hard for the female, Florence Stoker, to get this all-male society to back her. She had yeah. to cajole them. She had to you know, beat them upside the head. She had to get the secretary shamed to, to actually decide back them. Here's the problem. She wasn't a member. She had to join the society. She, she wasn't, they didn't have a lot of dues racked up from Florence Stoker. And they knew that this was going to be an expensive court case. So they actually embarked on it, knowing this was not going to be a great money winner for them. Two and a half years later, gents, as you, you guys probably know, the, the German courts ruled in favor of the Independent Society of Authors and Mrs. Stoker. Prana Film then goes and claims bankruptcy. Now, Holder mentioned to me and, and uh, some of the information that I've got from other sources, it wasn't just the fact they didn't just claim bankruptcy because they lost. They were very extravagant. And you probably yeah. know this about Murnau and, and all of his, uh, the, the opening night in, in Berlin. And they had actually sent films to six or seven different cities around the world trying to get uh, you know, previews of it, get in, input from people. So this was an extravagant group of guys in the early part of the days when there was not a lot of money in film and they had spent a lot of money. So when it came time for the court case, we don't even know what the record said, how much restitution they had to pay. All we know is they claim bankruptcy. So the German court, not Mrs. Stoker, the German court said, well, then you're going to have to destroy the copies of the film. Wow. So, they they said, well, that's not going to be easy. You know, we've only got one or two <laughs> copies here, you know, and, and now it gets murky. And I can only just assume that, again, this is picked up from different places. 
the independent society of authors their lawyer their german lawyer told them well if we want to pursue all the other countries where the copies are we're going to have to engage in attorneys in those countries wow oh, so geez. they just like cut it right there and said for, you know to mrs stoker sorry we can't afford that we've done what we're supposed to do you got your judgment and they're out there so it gets better though uh, because one of the places where it went was America. And in, in America, since the U.S. hadn't signed the Berne Convention, they were able to freely show this film. And it was kind of making, and you, you guys probably know better than I, because I'm not a big film buff, but, you know, there's underground cinema, there's coffee houses, there's these secret little places. The film was making its rounds in America. And Mrs. Stoker was worried rightfully so after she had done the right thing and sold the the the, the stage rights to dean and balderston the, the three of them owned them that she was going to be unable to profit from the legal sale of the rights to universal because mm -hmm. the pirate version was floating around in america and she was you know openly concerned i could see this in the letters why would they want to buy or sell the rights to us if they can somebody can just watch nosferatu now David Skull is helpful in this because he's done a lot of research as well. I don't know all the ins and the outs of when this happened. It's one of these blanks that we have. Somehow Universal saw it within themselves to go purchase that pirated film floating around in America. And, and Skull says either it was to get it off the streets and or to research it to, show, to see what they, could, what they could learn from it. The mm. bottom line is it worked for Universal. It worked for Mrs. Stoker because not too long after that, they purchased the film rights from the, the stage rights. Now, right. That's right. Because, yeah, because that, that right. 1931 movie is, is based on the play, not necessarily the book. Right. So there's another gray area. The book, as both you gents know, and your listeners do too, is is really complicated book when it comes to turning it in to a stage play than a film. So I would imagine they were thinking, well, Dean and Balderson have had success. They've already turned it into a, a stage play, which is, they've already cut out all these scene changes and all these different locations, which is was complicated. They, and as you know too, Mike, because you and I have talked about it, they've merged characters. Um, so <laughs> half of the Half of the you know sort of exploration of dramatizing the story has been done. They then bought the dramatic rights, and Florence did very well with with that sale. Um, she ended up you know getting a, a sizable amount of money, and she lived very comfortably. And 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 that's you know that's why I say all is well as ends well. You've got a film that survived. That's a very interesting film. It's a you, you know again I'm not a film guy that knows about mm -hmm. German expressionism. But I certainly enjoy watching it. And I certainly enjoy watching what people have done to update it and put more intertitles in, make good music scores. So, you know, at the end of the day, Bram Stoker being the legal guy that he was, you know, a, a clerk in the Petty Sessions legal department, became an inspector of all clerks around Ireland, wrote a manual, a legal manual. He protects his own plays, his, his own stories for stage. Little did he know he would need to do the same for film. And life goes on. Mrs. Stoker does well. So that's the that's the sort of the condensed version, gents, of uh, of what my 
uh, research showed me and that when it, my son and I wrote this story for uh, Screen Magazine, who are celebrating as you are the 100th anniversary and with Holder Mandel helping me from Germany, I think we gave a, you know, a pretty good perspective from the Stoker family that, you know, great film, glad it's still out there, but also the precedent was set that yes. you know, legally you, you got to do what you got to do right. Right, because on the one mm-hmm, hand, it's a classic so. movie that we are so thankful has survived. But on the other hand, it was an incident. And you, as you pointed out, uh, everything was new at this time. Nobody really knew, you know, what, you know, licensing and film, certainly film was still pretty new. Uh, so rights were, especially international rights, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it looks like they did know enough to change, obviously, the names of the characters, uh, as well as some of the the plot of the movie. But um, uh, and I could talk to you forever about legal licensing with Dracula and Stoker, because that stuff is like, uh, I'm sure, uh, fascinating along the uh, throughout the years. Uh, but as far as I yeah, you mentioned it real briefly there, but I was kind of wondering your personal take on the film on Nosferatu if there's anything that you feel that it gets right do you appreciate it is it is it a accurate or at least a decent interpretation of Bram Stoker's Dracula yeah I I I think it is I mean obviously nothing is really faithful to the novel I mean (laughs) true (laughs) the the BBC's miniseries in 1977 with Louis Jordan Louis Jordan yeah as far as being you know, the first out of the blocks <clears throat> with the technology they had at the time, they certainly had the creepiest Count Orlock slash Dracula <laughs> that came out for a long time. And, and you know, it's kind of nice because when the story was adapted on the stage, all the actors were, you know, suave, debonair, aristocratic looking Draculas, which is not Bram's Dracula. The closest mm-hmm. Dracula was what was, was Shrek and, and his Count Orlock. So that was, to me, the most, you know, openly close thing to Bram's story. They they also, I thought, which was cool, since they had been suffering in Germany, you know, from these contagious diseases, plagues mm-hmm. that brought on by the rats. I love that because the digging that I did into the research of Dracula, Bram draws, you know, similar parallels, but he doesn't show it in the book as much is that's part of his creation of the vampire myth emerged. And it's in Bram's notes, the tuberculosis outbreak in New England, uh, the other things that he writes in the Jane Stoddard interview that, you know, this came from the mid middle ages. So that was another cool thing that uh, Murnau did was tie the myth of the vampire to real horrors that were knocking on the front door of Germans and of these villagers. So, that made the story realistic and, you know, that willful suspension of disbelief, is this stuff real? So, Mike, those are the two big things. And, of course, you know, the, the switching back and forth of locations, I like the way they did that. And even though there wasn't, you know, dialogue, you get you certainly get the idea that it's kind of constantly changing, sort of like the book did, different perspectives. And other movies haven't done that because it's, you know it's it's complicated to do so those are really my big three things is you get the feel of the epistolary style of the novel with the changes of a visual perspective often throughout the story so that, that's that's what i think there was a uh um remake 
1979, and there's going to be apparently a new movie of a new version of Nosferatu that's being, I think, currently produced as we speak. Um, do you know if uh, they they this is the Nosferatu rights tied in with Dracula now, where they have to admit or have to acknowledge Bram Stoker and whenever a Nosferatu project is made? Do you know that? I, d- I don't know that. Um, I know it is it's probably not any uh, clearer than it was back in the day. A <laughs> hundred years ago. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, this this is what I've read, and, and this is how kind of crazy it is. Even though the rights were acknowledged at the time, they were for they were you know for Mrs. Stoker to sell or use as she wants. When she won the court case, and the film was supposedly destroyed it was destroyed in germany so did she win that and therefore that's over but when the other ones went to other countries where there was no burn convention what Mm -hmm. what does that really mean and now that they've been remade and the film rights were sold to universal who actually is the one that holds the rights you see dracula literary is is from the literary standpoint is in public domain 1962 So the, the book is out of Stoker's, the family's control. The only things we have control of, and, and I do represent my two cousins, the great-grandsons in Bram's intellectual property in our protection and promotion of it, is things that were not, not published, his image, and his, his, his signature. Not the things that have gone to public domain. So uh, honestly, I think Universal would have a dog in the fight <laughs> when it comes to, to film rights. Mm-hmm. And I don't really want to, you know, pay thousands and thousands of dollars to a lawyer to say, oh, you you guys didn't have those rights anyway. They were gone when the film was destroyed in Germany. So my, my great question, I don't know. Maybe there's a lawyer listening to your to I was going to say, that, I'm like, I'm like, oh, is it going to, is history going to repeat itself like it did a hundred years ago? Are you going to go after the new production? <laughs> the <Stoker laughs> family is going to go after the new production of Nosferatu, but uh, no, it's all good. I'm so. sure, I'm sure that they will acknowledge Bram. I mean, I know that the, uh, almost every version that I've seen of Nosferatu has, I mean, it's pretty much public knowledge now that it was based on, on Dracula and that Bram Stoker's vision uh, it's just another version of Bram Stoker's original vision, but um, we appreciate your time and your perspective on this. Uh, what have you, I know you're a busy guy. What have you got going on? What can we help uh, promote for you? Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one thing you you can help promote because it's uh, it's hot off the press. Um, for the last three years, I've been working on an annotated Dracula for the 125th anniversary. And I was working on it with a, a, a wonderful scholar, um, Robert 18 Bassang, who's one of the two people who wrote, uh, who, excuse me, transcribed the Dracula notes along with Elizabeth Miller. But over the last two years during COVID, both of these scholars have died. Mm-hmm. And um, my good friend, Robert Bassang, died uh, about three weeks after we finished our final edit. He went in the hospital with a heart attack and he it wasn't a, it wasn't a serious one, but he was getting prepped. Um, for a stint and um, he was on the blood thinners to help everything else and uh, he he got out of bed he shouldn't have against the orders of of the hospital to go to the loo and he tripped over all the wires and he Mm. banged his head and Mike just like Renfield he ended up with a terrible brain bleed and the fact that he was on thinners 
they couldn't do anything to save him. Oh, so man. He, he I'm lost sorry consciousness. to hear that. Wow. His wife sat with him and read to him for, uh, for, for about 12 hours, and, and then he finally expired. So I'm really proud to bring this book. Hellbound Publishing is, is, is putting it out. And what's cool about it, guys, is that it has all the references to the missing 101 pages of the Dracula typescript. It's got the from Dracula's notes, what were the original chapters. We don't have the chapters, but we've got what they were, explanations of what they were. We also have many references highlighted in the story by underlining what was cut out of the typescript. Because Basang is one of the guys who was able to analyze it. So we know all the things that were taken out the last moment. We also see the 30,000 words that are, that are highlighted in a dark grayscale, kind of shading over the 30,000 words that Bram had to extract to make the first abridged edition. So you've essentially got sort of a three-for-one book. You see his Dracula notes interspaced within the story. You see that what was taken out in the typescript, and then you see the abridged edition, uh, along with... 1400 footnotes that Robert and I felt were worthy, you know, of inclusion because many other people have done excellent annotations before us and we wanted mm -hmm. to comment on those. So it's at Amazon, uh, Dracula annotated for the 120th anniversary by Dacre Stoker and Robert 18 Basang. And that's his last words. You know, Robert was a, a kind of guy that always loved to get the last word. So he's sitting up there in heaven looking at us going, by golly, go buy it because I get the last word now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I, I haven't got it yet, but I, 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 you know, I don't need an excuse for another version of Dracula on my shelf, but that is, uh, yeah, I will make, I'll make shelf space for that for sure. Um, anything else? No, just, uh, you know, have a safe Halloween, a scary Halloween, and uh, hope to see you on the, on the circuit like I normally do um at, at all the places we get together and talk spooky things so uh i'll be in dublin <laughs> ireland during halloween where are you going to be mike uh i am uh well first of all i'm going to miss you seeing you because we always see each other at monsterama and i got i'm going to monsterama uh, the one day thing this uh this week um as people listening to this uh i've already been there but um uh so i'll miss seeing you there for sure um, and I don't have my exact like Halloween plans, uh, just yet, but, uh, yeah, this is a great month. I celebrated all month. So, uh, who, I mean, who doesn't in this world? So, uh, yeah, I'm about <laughs> to go and do a little presentation tonight out here in Clayton, uh, California. So thank you guys for having me on the show. All the listeners, Absolutely. Stay, safe, stay, stay scary and think Bram Stoker next time you see Dracula. Thanks, awesome. Awesome. Thanks, Taker. Bye-bye. Yeah, Let's take a quick break and we'll be back in a moment. And we are going to be talking all about how do you say it? Nadarafsu. Nasratu. Nasratu. <laughs> Nasratu. Don't say it, he'll show up. Modern Musicology is a podcast covering topics on rock and pop ranging mostly from the 70s, 80s, and 90s with occasional excursions into the 60s and aughts and even occasionally the 2010s. Anything is fair game. Classic rock, R&B, folk, punk, prog, rap, metal, and way more with two Americans, one Brit, a ton of fun, and a healthy dose of cynicism. 
Welcome back to Earth Station One. Now it is time for the main topic. Take it away, Mikey. What are we yes. talking about tonight? Well, the uh, countdown to Halloween continues, and we are talking all about, uh, uh, well, the ESO movie crew is here. And we're going back, I mean, as far back as we've ever gone. Like, we are going, we are going 100 years back to 1922 to review the silent German classic Nosferatu. Uh, Symphony of Horror, I believe it's the uh, subtitle name. Um, yes. And uh, yes, we've got our movie crew here. A- Ashley is here. Thank you for having me back. I think this might be the oldest movie I've ever gotten a chance to watch and my first silent film. So I was very excited to dive into this. Yeah, you, you checked off a number of boxes off your, because uh, at the beginning of the year, you had a sort of goal as to uh, reach, uh, spread out your uh, knowledge of what uh, movies you've watched, right? Like, this this counts as a horror film, silent film, a, a foreign film. Like, yes, <laughs> I love it. It's like the... all in a row there. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, it'll be really interesting to hear. Uh, your thoughts on not just the film itself, but your experience watching a silent movie for the first time. And we couldn't count down to Halloween this month without at least once having the award-winning artist Mark Maddox join us. Mark, welcome back. Well, thanks for having me for this episode. You know, it's it's a movie that I love dearly. I was shocked the first time I saw it as to how good it was. Usually you think uh, silent films and you're like, oh, brother. And... (laughs) And everything. You find out there's actually some really darn great silent films, Metropolis, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, but this one is really up there, high up on the list of great silent films. It's very, uh, it moves fast and it's very fun to watch. Um, So, yeah. And still, for most people, or a lot of people, it's still the greatest vampire. I mean, on cinema, you know, in terms of the, in terms of the just absolute creep factor. Yeah, it's it's interesting because, um, you know, I mean, look, uh, we are going to talk about our experience watching this and the influence that the movie had and our own experience with it. But, um, you know, th- there's been so much written, talked about with this movie. The influences are countless. So there's no way, you know, we'll be able to really cover the entirety of this movie with this podcast. But I do want to start from the personal experience like we like to do, Mark. And and what was your first time watching this? Do you remember uh, like how old yeah. you were and did you know about it? And, you know, why a did you bit. feel compelled to watch a, a silent movie? Because back then, like, I mean, even when I was growing up, it wasn't easy to find these movies no. until like no. a video store popped up. And even then it was kind of tricky. Well, it was, um, I had seen a few pictures of it in books about vampires and stuff. And even if it was a historical book on vampires, like something by Don Glute or something, you'd see a picture from it. And it said that the vampire that he's writing about is similar to, blah, and then he'd show a picture of Nosferatu. Um, and then I'd seen a few pictures in Famous Monsters of Filmland back in the 60s and early 70s. And then uh, I was living here in Tallahassee. And pre-VHS and the local PBS station, WFSU, ran it on a Saturday night. 
so I knew a little bit about it, but um, I, I, I sat through it. My my uh, twin sisters were there watching it with me in the living room, and my dad only two times in his life ever sat through a film with a large pillow on his lap with him peeking over and looking over the pillow and going like, Oh my God. And one of them were the first, the first uh, showing of the exorcist on HBO where they had to come out with a guy who gave a disclaimer that we're not promoting devil tree or anything. True story. And then, and Nosferatu, because we, I mean, I ex- I didn't know it was going to be as creepy as it was or, or, or the, the vampire was going to be as horrific, but that was around, I don't know, 77, 78 was the first time I saw it and I was completely blown away by it. And then, um, later, you know, VHS, when it came out, cause it was public domain, everybody, every yep. little chumpy little yep. <laughs> mom and pop VHS creation company was, was putting out copies. You'd go into Walden's books and there'd be, Oh, look, we've got VHS and there'd be Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and Nosferatu. And at the time it's a wonderful life because nobody owned anything. <laughs> yeah, right. They re-owned it, but yes, um, I was completely blown away by it. Um, I felt that it was, uh, uh, you know, it was um, a, a, a thing of great beauty, even though it's scary. Uh, there was a lot of creativity in it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And to think that the, the, the versions that we saw for years or decades were just so compared to the restored one and yeah. the, the, the version that is exists now. Um, it's like, wow, how did we, like we were watching, it was like sort of watching a movie with a, uh, uh, it just, it just wasn't together yet, but yet we didn't know that to us. It was just, uh, uh, that's the way it was. Um, yeah. Yeah. and that's what it was true of most silent movies at the time. Um, and we've lost so many silent movies. And as we talked about in the beginning of the show with Dacre, I mean, obviously we almost lost this one. Uh, yeah. and uh, imagining, uh, if we had, Ooh, what a big hole in pop culture that would have been. Uh, Mike, what um, what was your first experience watching this? Well, similar to Mark, you know, I'm a little bit younger, but not that much. And, you know, I saw pictures of it. And, you know, probably I was like seven, eight years old when I started hearing about it and seeing the pictures of the vampire. And, you know, and seeing, oh, this is, you know, this is what was before Dracula. This is, and, but I wasn't able, I had nowhere to see it. They weren't showing it anywhere or they weren't really, you know, people weren't talking about it a ton. And it wasn't actually until I was in college. Um, and we studied, we we're studying at my film history class and we got to watch um, a somewhat restored version of it. And this, cause this was probably 89 or 90 at the the latest and it was you know still very grainy compared to the version i watched um earlier today the version i watched was barely watchable and anything compared to it and Mm -hmm. it it's just it was amazing to watch you know i'd said oh it's a silent film it's gonna be 15 20 minutes at the most (laughs) it's a one reeler (laughs) yeah exactly well exactly Because, you know, I I used to watch, you know, I had watched some silent films before that, you know, I'd watched like, uh, because this is also the time when I was studying animation. 
So I was watching like Gertie the Dinosaur. I was watching um, Journey to the Moon and, you know, items like that. And all the Charlie Chaplin's uncles and my grandfather, Buster Keaton's, you know, that's mostly how I knew silent films. So this was something completely different. And it was amazing. It was, it blew me away when I saw it. And it was such a good story. It was riveting and it wasn't goofy like I was expecting it to be. This was a true, you know, work of art and it moved really smoothly and I got an A on the paper. So it's good, you know, (laughs) and that makes it even better. And over the years, you know, you watch the movies that were based off of this movie and you know, stuff like that. I'm sure we'll talk all about that in a little bit. So I don't want to get into sure. it now. But, Absolutely. But, I mean, hopefully, yeah. And so, yeah, it was it was amazing to see it, you know, as a 20-year-old. But, you know, now to watch it, you know, as a year-old. So it's pretty cool. So. <laughs> well, we're not as old as Orlock. So, uh, you know, I we am. got that going for us. <laughs> I don't think Nosferatu is the first silent movie that I ever watched. Uh, I think that was either something by Chaplin or since I was a big Hitchcock fan, probably the lodger. Um, uh, Because that's, you know, I was really trying to get my hands on everything Hitchcock when I was in junior high, high school, some in that area. Um, So, uh, but Nosferatu, I probably watched for the first time around then. Um, And then as I took film studies classes in college, I took one class that was just silent movies. Uh, It was from like, I think the, the, the range of years from that we saw movies from was like 18, whatever the first one is 18, like 95 or something something like that. Yeah. Right. To I think 20, I'm sorry, 19, Oh, 1905, 1910, like 1910 was somewhere like that was the the range. Um, and obviously this is 1922. So I saw a lot of uh, um, one reelers and shorts. Um, but I got I got into seeing um, silent movies and I wasn't afraid of them. The, th- the thing is that, that most people don't know of, there are some that are just really long. Like <laughs> you think of silent movies, Mike, as short. But um, there are like intolerance is like almost three hours, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I think the Birth of a Nation. Yeah, Birth of a Nation is yeah. hugely is, long. Is, yeah, yeah, it's like a, a couple hours. I think it's under a couple hours. But um, there's another beautiful, I think it's German, right? Um, silent movie about witchcraft called Hexen, which Hexen. is like yeah is in that four or five i just hours? did i just did a cover for that no it was it was regularly at least the version i saw recently was regular length i did a cover of it for a screen magazine uh pretty powerful stuff yeah, uh yeah. kind of surprising yeah the stuff that um, was coming out of europe was really stylized and and not well, that was that whole weimark Vi- era pre before certain powers came into play that you know stomped on everything Sure. Uh, the Weimar era was a very, very creative era, and um, and that's why a lot of the creatives that were making stuff, including Fritz Lang with his uh, Metropolis and all that stuff, got out. Uh, mm-hmm. But before that, it was it was beautiful creativity going on there. There's so many films that we I don't even know the names of some of these films, you know, and uh, and they they're 
you know, all that, all that creative stuff where you thought on your own was just, you know, hated. Yeah. And it's amazing how much of that stuff doesn't exist anymore. I mean, uh, over 50% of the films that ever got made are destroyed over 50% of the films that were ever made are gone. And I've heard it's even, um, a bigger percentage. Um, I'll, you know, I think, uh, the director of this F F W Murnau like, I think almost every, like maybe just there's one movie that he did before this that he, that exists, but this is his like oh, eighth wow. or ninth movie, and almost all of his stuff before this is gone. Oh, that's uh, so. Um, so yeah, it's a uh, it's a special thing. Um, you know, you don't see them very often. I don't know what you know what what people are watching if they're if they're if they can watch. I know most of my friends can't make it through a silent movie without falling asleep. Like they just, they try and they just can't between no dialogue and having to read. <laughs> uh, Damn you know, reading. Are, Jeez. Uh, same people who don't like the subtitles thing. Right. So, um, and plus it's in black and white, although, you know, it's not as simple as that. Right. Cause it does, yeah. they do use colors uh, to depict whether it's night or day or some other stuff happening. Yeah. So it's not just sepia tone. Um, so I'm really interested, Ashley, uh, in what your experience was with this. First of all, like, um, I mean, I know you hadn't watched one before that. Was there a reason that you hadn't watched silent movies? Was there something that was like turning you off of them? And what, what did you feel like what the, the experience would be like? Some, honestly, part of it is probably awareness and lack of availability. I think that is one of the benefits of streaming. I was very easily to find a, um, and no charge streaming as well, um, on Voodoo is where I ended up watching this movie, but mm. which I think is the great thing about streaming is that now more people across the world can access these works of art. And then again, like a lot of friends and people that I talk about pop culture with, don't really talk about silent movies. I think it's just something I hadn't really encountered before. So I was really grateful for this chance to kind of push me outside of that cinematic comfort zone, really. And I also was surprised when I saw this was like an hour and 20 minutes, but um, kind of putting myself back in the mindset of somebody who would have watched this in like contemporary, I I think my mind would have been blown. Just the fact that, (laughs) yeah, like... When we've seen stuff like this now, but that's because so many things have drawn from it, like vampire stories, the classic kind of tropes that we think of now, things like this movie were where it originated. And it was just really fascinating to me to realize that I'm sitting down watching a piece of art that was created a hundred years ago. And just in the middle of this very tumultuous time of history, you just had the end of World War One. Um, the Spanish flu, the plague or the pandemic that had gone through. So I thought that was interesting. That plague ended up being kind of a part of this movie. I wonder if that was influenced at all. People's very immediate experience of the Spanish flu. And then the fact that you have within just a very short period of time, you have world war two and the rise of Nazi Germany. So just like what, a period of history for this to take place in. But yeah, I was also really impressed by, in some ways, it's, yes, a product of its time. And 
some of the manners of mannerism of the actors, maybe some people might now might call it overacting, but they need to emote that way because you don't have the dialogue, but just how modern it felt in some ways. I loved the use of light and shadow. There was a particular moment that stood out to me and it was just a simple moment, but you have this guy that's going through and he lights the street lamp and then it illuminates the scene. And I just really enjoyed seeing that interplay between light and shadow and how serious this movie is. I think, yeah, a lot of times when I thought of silent movie, I would think about like kind of slapstick physical comedy, but this is real. Right. Yeah, exactly. And there, and there's nothing wrong with that either, but yeah, there's some very chilling moments in this movie. And yeah, I just felt really thankful that I got a chance to see it. Obviously the version, there's still some graininess to the film, but just the fact that they were able to preserve it to this extent a film that was made 100 years ago was just really cool. So yeah, I think watching a film like this is a must for any film fan. Like even if you, this type of movie isn't your thing, I feel like it's very worthwhile as a film fan to watch and just kind of give you a greater appreciation of how the art was developed and how much movies that we rely on today, like a movie that I watched this summer called uh, nope by Jordan Peele. Like we wouldn't have movies like this today if not for these early groundbreaking stories. So yeah, I, I thought it was really valuable experience for me to watch as a film fan. Now that said, um, you know, because it's, it's listed as a classic. So obviously, you know, um, it, it's got that sort of reputation. It's an important movie. It's a influential movie. It, it's, uh, you know, so when you go to watch it, you're like, okay, I'm going to watch something that's a pretty big deal, right? But at the end of the day, you're just watching a movie, mm-hmm. right? So if you set aside all of the importance of the movie, does did it work for you on a personal level? I think it does. Yeah, it's a simple story, but it's told well. And I think it speaks to I think why horror movies continue to have that enduring popularity because obviously there aren't really vampires out there but like the fear of danger unknown things like that are something that we as humans can relate to and this film was a particular interest to me because for a long time I avoided horror movies because I thought oh that's too gory or that's too scary and then um I credit Jordan Peele's Get Out for changing my mind. I was like, this is a phenomenal movie. There's some great storytelling. What have I been missing this time? So yeah, I think this is a great example of a simple story, but it's compelling. And I also love that um, because it's a silent movie, there's not even any necessarily translation. It's a story that speaks to you regardless of what language. And I think honestly, you could watch this movie, the title cards help, but even if you somehow didn't have those, I feel like you could follow along and tell what was happening with the story due to the characters and the light and the cinematography that they were using. Yeah. Yeah. Had you ever seen a version of Dracula before? I don't think I have, which is oh, funny wow. because it's such a pop culture staple. So it's one of those <laughs> really things is. like, Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm sure I've seen it. Rest, well, gosh, have I actually sat down and seen a movie with this character. So it was interesting doing a little bit of research too, about how um, this movie kind of tells its original story, but was inspired by that. And just the idea of literature just throughout history being inspired by and people doing their own interpretations and retellings. The uh, yeah, because it is, I mean, it is basically uh, Murnau telling the story of Dracula. Now there are some changes obviously uh, both for 
legal reasons that didn't really work out for them and uh and and artistic reasons uh the ending for example um is 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 quite original and i think uh it's telling as well and uh you know the thing about vampire movies uh they're just a vampire movie nine times out of ten especially the classics the the vampire is never just a vampire there's always a lot of symbolism Mm-hmm. metaphorical images things going on uh that's especially of its time but i think now watching i don't know how mike and mark how, i don't know how you felt about this but watching it now watching it this weekend it's the first time i've seen it since the pandemic <laughs> so now i have the <laughs> pandemic experience as well like yeah. they did back then in, in 22 when the when the audience was watching it um, it does feel like there's it's more impactful, especially uh, what's going on in the town and the fear of the plague and the and the Black Death, right? Um, what about you, Mark? What what since you've seen it probably more than any of I've us? I've seen it more uh, than all of you and all your friends. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I've literally um, watched it some more than twice, sometimes in one day, just for my own entertainment. So yeah, nice. go ahead. Um, he has what, the count uh, like, tattooed on the, his back. Actually, <laughs> off the off the most recent viewing, what what new information did it bring to you? Well, the interesting thing is. It, you know, you guys were talking about, well, we had an old crappy copy and all that. And then and then it's like and the new restored copy. Oh, wow. Well, there is some real greatness in that restoration. But there's also some telling stuff, too. Like, I've got this huge TV set that's actually the brand name, Big Ass TV, in the living room. And the, <laughs> and the count walks in. Remember when he's skulking through the town supposedly at night but they had to do it in the daytime because for lighting and he's tiptoeing through like and he stops and they show him observing big old close-up and you can see that the ear and you can see a big old piece of tape holding his pointed (laughs) ear on and you can see the big strap of tape going around his skull to hold his his bald head on you know that kind of thing so it's kind of like ooh, that took me out of the (laughs) took me out of the movie having said that uh, there are so many things in this film with the clarity now that just make it even that more entertaining, that more in your face, that more in the room with you. And I would still say out of all these vampire movies, I've watched some anywhere from superb to absolutely horrid. And whether there's anything, this film, I would still challenge some people to, to watch it at two o'clock in the morning or one o'clock in the morning in a, in a house with all the lights off by yourself. And if you've never seen it, there's no gore. Uh, there's the, the fang work isn't much in this, you know, and all that kind of stuff, but just the sheer creep factor and Max Shrek and his performance and the use of unusual special effects at the time, the the like almost like a plank of wood to raise him straight up <laughs> yeah. out of the coffin, which which you know was later. You know, there's been other people that have have done that. Uh, you know, and and uh, Coppola did an homage to it in, in Bram Stoker's Dracula. But when you when you watch it, like I said, my dad looked at it from behind the pillow. My dad had been to Vietnam and stuff, and yet here he is still, you know, looking out from behind a pillow because it creeped him out. But what face out of any face in the universe would be the worst for you to wake up in the middle of the night and look out the window and see that looking in at you? 
I mean, it's still the ugliest and most horrific and most evil and vile face that's ever been created. And that's why so many films like uh, what's the Stephen King Salem's Lot, the TV movie yeah. Yeah. and stuff like that. And uh, what we do in the shadows and everything use that same bald rat like vampire. Oh, so the new monsters uh, even did. Even that's the new true. monsters did. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And uh, it's because it's like still the ultimate creep, creep vampire. It's the pestilence vampire. So, yeah, yes. I mean, um, when you and what you were asking, what you were talking about earlier with the uh, uh, the plague and all that, um, you know, it was such a big deal back then. I mean, and people were, you know, uh, people were had polio and people were, uh, were 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 vulnerable to all this kind of stuff. Even redone later in 1979 in, in Werner Herzog's remake, which is also a great movie in its own right. But it's so, four so many rats, so many it's, rats. It's it, yeah. Why did it have to be rats? But it's, oh it's man, like the streets so run many, like are full of rats in that one. It's just and like oh my god, partying amongst the corpses and stuff. Finally, just oh to heck with it. Let's you know, let's get drunk. Uh, um. And that's why I try to tell people about stuff. You need to pay attention to history, you know. So, mm-hmm. Mike, what about you? What uh, what's something from this uh, latest, most recent viewing that uh, really uh, spoke to you on this on this time? The pacing, the pacing was wonderful on this. It didn't feel like there was really a dead moment, no pun intended, and it felt like it just moved all the way through. I was never bored. I was like riveted to the screen. Yeah, I was, you know, talking back to it a little bit when, you know, I was reading and stuff like that. But, you know, so, but it was just the way it was shot, the way, you know, you know, oh, it's supposed to be night. I was like wondering why the vampire was out because, you know, they were filming a lot during the day and everything. And even Judy, you know, who had seen this years and years ago when she was in college, uh, was watching it with me and she says, this is great. This is, you know, and it's fun because you see how different, so many different scenes that with the vampire, especially that are still used in film today. And it's awesome. It's thinking this is a hundred years ago and this was setting the table to stuff we see in modern cinema and everything. And that's what makes it pretty amazing with this. I think uh, this time when I was watching it, it really made, you know, made an impact on me this time because I was looking at it not as a horror movie because I was thinking, you know, when Murnau made this, it's not like he was like, I'm going to make a horror movie. (laughs) I mean, for him, he was just making because there wasn't really a genre then. Right. Like there wasn't like a specific he's not like I'm going to make a, you know, a horror movie. Because he was hanging out with, uh, you know, painters and uh, writers and authors and poets. And uh, I think he was attracted to dark material. I think later after this, he makes a version of Faust, if I'm not mistaken. Great movie. Uh, Just watched it last year. Fantastic. Yeah. And so so he's attracted to dark material. But for him, it's it's telling the story. But it's every shot. Uh, every scene, every sequence, uh, you know, the soundtrack. That's why uh, I re- I strongly recommend uh, the Kino Lover version because it has the original soundtrack 
uh, well, not the original soundtrack, but it uses the original score that he wanted for the movie because, you know, with uh, all the public domain copies, you don't have any idea what kind of music they're going to use. They're probably going to slap on some sort of, you know, classical music that they have uh, rights to or that is free use as well, or some sort of some dude with the synthesizer, you know, like, like, like I've seen, I've seen some pretty bad ones, but, um, uh, but, you know, he's, he's making uh, like a statement. He wants to make a, a, it's an art film for him. You know, this is an artistic film. Again, vampire doesn't mean vampire. It means that everything means so much more. Um, and it made, it made the movie have, even though I think it flows, as Mike said, it flows really easily, but it still feels like it has like real weight and real stakes to it. Uh, and there's a, I'm intending that pun. Um, even though there's not a stake that's used in this, you know, this here it is a, a vampire movie with no stakes. Um, yeah. Uh, because I do think the ending in particular is, you know, it, it, why does, why did Murnau change that? Um, you know, he gives, he gives the, the, the woman character in this uh, so much agency, uh, you know, for actually sac- making the ultimate sacrifice to stop this monster, and uh, spoilers, and <laughs> uh, damn it, Mike, you had to ruin it. For <laughs> you know, um, and I just thought that was that was really kind of progressive. You wouldn't think that a movie made in 1922 would do that sort of thing. Well, a lot of things back then were pre-code. You know, films were kind of loose back then yeah. until about 1933, you know, in the United States, that is, where it was like, no, 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 you can't do yeah. that anymore. And then you go and you watch movies pre-1933 and you kind of go, wow, they did some pretty wild stuff. Yeah, but you the know? U.S., like the American filmmakers weren't doing stuff like this. Like, well, that, I mean, that's tar- what's really... Tarzan, Tarzan had actual full frontal nudity and I was yes, shocked. I know. Yes. But, uh, but Commissioner yeah, Gordon. but uh but you look at uh you look at uh but uh, yeah i mean now another version and i'm trying to find this is the is james bernard who was hammer's main soundtrack guy the one who did all that crazy really intense christopher lee peter cushing music did a soundtrack that they play on bbc where you've got hammer style music combined with nosferatu it killed oh wow killed it here yeah man. that that would be yeah i do wish yeah that would be kind of cool if there was an edition that had you could choose what sort of soundtrack you wanted the original soundtrack really? or i've had some other people that have suggested other scores uh when i posted that i'd rewatched this and people were like oh you should check out this score and the score so uh I, there has been some um you know interesting music applied to this um and obviously the imagery is is key i mean that's something that i think is going to stay with you i think uh you know that's the that's one of the differences between silent movies and movies now is that they're so focused on the visual image to be able to tell the story without dialogue to be able to tell the story even without music if necessary um that's why a lot of the great filmmakers came from like Hitchcock came from doing silence because they're even when they were, even when they could talk, they were still telling the movies visually first yeah. uh, and setting them up visually. And I find it's not like, you know, I'm not ragging on today's movies or whatever, but it's like, man, I wish, you know, they, they were more visually stylized uh, yeah. to tell a story 
um, you know. Um, what's something else that that Nosferatu, this movie, uh, brings to the table, or what's something else that you noticed from this, Ashley? Yeah, I'm glad you had uh, referred to the female characters because that's something that impressed me as well. That's something as a female fan of pop culture, whenever I'm watching a classic movie, I kind of know going in, sometimes, yeah, the female characters are going to make me like face palm a little bit, but it's like of the era, but I was kind of impressed again by how this goes. The female character does die at the end, but again, she's the one who kind of figures it out. It's like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be the hero and sacrifice myself for the town. And she's the one who does the research and figures it out while everybody was panicking. So she was really an intriguing character, which is more than I expected. Like in the beginning, I thought, oh, this is this guy's wife. She's just kind of distraught that he's leaving. But again, there's more going on. Like she's sensing the supernatural threat of the vampire. Like um, she kind of knows that there's some bad things coming. And so, yeah, like you said, she does have a lot of agency, which I thought was cool. And also interesting that um, the main character, the one guy who goes to see uh, the vampire, he's warned off by the villagers, but doesn't listen and goes anyway. That's a classic theme in literature and in real life. Sometimes you try to warn people that something bad's going to happen. They're like, ah, whatever. And they continue on and um, something bad happens to them surprisingly. So yeah, I, I thought it was shockers. It is really. It was cool to see. And also, this is kind of a side note, but I'm a big fan of period dramas like Downton Abbey and things like that. And it's cool to think, oh, 1922, this is a movie that those characters could have gone to watch something contemporary at that time. So that was kind of just, it's not necessarily related, but I thought just kind of a fun aside. I'm such a fan of period dramas that this would have been an influential work of art at that time. That was my and favorite Downton Abbey episode where they went to see Nosferatu. And I, it was a missed, Smith threw up. You know, it was a missed opportunity for a crossover, I, I would say. <laughs> you really, Nosferatu versus Downton Abbey. Yes. <laughs> I, the I new think neighbor, it's oh, he really yeah, sucks. <laughs> that's, I, I, that's right. Yeah, really. <laughs> I, think it's, uh, I think it's interesting, too. The other thing I really was aware of this time when I was watching it is that it's made in 1922. But the movie, the story takes place in 1838, almost, you know, a couple decades, less than 100 years before yeah. this is being made. So we're really like watching a movie that's going back in time, telling a story that's even further back in time. Yeah, it's yeah. like um, a very early period drama, even though now this um, time in which it was made is considered like would be a period drama that we would watch about characters. So really interesting yeah. to see that. And kind of have like to the- forget forget that like you know when you're watching it 1922 oh yeah people don't people aren't dressed like this in 1922 like this is not how people yeah. dress right in 1922. yeah no no no, no. they're I mean, not even some, dressed like some, that in dracula it, which was like 1890 something in, in some villages maybe but like for yeah. most most part they didn't come you know but they didn't modernize but uh We've talked about the look of Orlock, and I think it's important, too, that this is a version of Dracula, one of the first versions of Dracula that's on film that, I mean, you could argue, but really, it's not, the vampire here, and Orlock in particular, is not, not sexualized. Like oh, this, I mean, most, uh, uh-huh. most, almost every version of Dracula after this, certainly with Bella on, 
Yeah. The vampire is sexualized. Sort of but here, I, I don't, I, you know, I mean, I guess you could find him sexually attractive, but I mean, that's, that's a, yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. Nobody's raising <laughs> their hands. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a, I don't think that's what they were going for. Right. Um, something else about this movie, Mark, that, uh, that sticks with you? Well, I got to admit, Mike, when you were talking about, and there's this version and there's that version and there's one guy with a synthesizer, there's another one with the score with a guy on a banjo. I mean, all this kind of stuff. I forgot that I was actually participated in one of those, which was um, uh, Cortland Hull, who is related to Henry Hull, the werewolf of London. Mm -hmm. put out a version about two years ago with uh, a new soundtrack and an introduction by Mark Hamill. And they had me do some artwork for it. So when you were talking about that, Oh yeah. I mean, the, the box is over there someplace on, on the shelf, but I, uh, but um, the, uh, what was your question again? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you brought something new to it. So uh, yeah. What, uh, yeah. What's something else about the movie that, uh, well, let's talk about, you know, uh, things in there, um, certain settings and ways that they decided to do stuff that was brilliant with no money. I think that's one of the reasons when you were talking about the ending of this film, the woman uh, basically threw herself on a live grenade for the town. And uh, but uh, the visual ending where he's walking across and turns into a puff of smoke that's a budget thing. I mm-hmm. mean, it's a Star Trek transporter thing. We can't pay, take a spaceship down to the planet every week, so let's beam them down. This was, we can't have the big fight. We can't have the castle, you know, all that kind of stuff. With other scenes in the film where it was uh, style over budget, just things like the length of his fingers that were super long when he would become full-on vampire, mm-hmm. or he looked even, I don't want to say normal, but when he's when he's talking to the guy at first, it's like, boy, that guy's ugly. But then he gets like <laughs> extra ugly. There's like a put some extra stink in it. Um, another thing too, like old radio, where you would listen to something and your brain built everything in in your head. Like if you were listening to a shadow episode, you would build a whole city and whatever they were doing. And all. this is the opposite. I will sit there and watch this film. And I will be the voices of the people in my head. And like Nosferatu will go, oh, your wife has a lovely throat. You know, I would we supply the noise. Like he, he looks so horrific. What does he sound like? And your brain provides his voice. Um, the, uh, the, the settings, the European settings, the Germ- German settings, the um, uh, willingness like when he – the guy looks out the door at night. I think this is one of the greatest scenes in film history, period, let alone a horror film, where he looks out of the door of his bedroom and the count is way down the end of the hallway, full on bald, full on pointed ears. And the guy just starts freaking out and slams the door and runs and hides under his pillow. And then when the door opens and the count comes through with his, it's almost like his long fingernails and his hands are glued to his thighs and Mm -hmm. he just fits in the door and he, and he, and he walks through. I remember the first time I saw it, I thought this is 
pure genius. They're doing everything that they can to think about, you know, once again, you're in your bed and you see this thing coming through the door or the guy who goes on the ship, he goes, you know what? I've had enough. I'm going to go downstairs and I'm going to kick some backside. And he goes downstairs with the hatchet, starts <laughs> chopping and some stuff. Wow. There's a lot of rats here. And then the coffin flips open and the vampire stands straight up and the guy just loses it, you know, and then just runs and just jumps off. I mean, every time I've ever watched that film, it's like, yep, that's what I do. I, I take my chances in the ocean, yeah. you know, like all them sailors in Jaws. I take my chances in the ocean rather than, than, than when I saw that. It's like, okay, game over, man. There's a lot of beautiful, brilliant little horror things that are truly horrific in this. And I applaud them on the micro budget that they had that they pulled so many things off so well. Or or him in the window looking across the street at the woman with his hands when, like this. When, when and she staring looks across through. the window and just sees – you know, it's beautifully shot because you can kind of see that he's in the building. He's in, he's in one of the windows or whatever. And, and yeah. he's, he's in shadow, but it's just enough that it's really creepy. And then when he's down at the doorway, it's just like, it's, yeah, it's, and especially since, you know, if it was a guy watching him, it would be different. But since it's a woman watching him, it's even more like creepy, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the creepiest part of the movie is when the guy steps on the rat and the rat bites him in the toe and he jumps up and down. That really bothered me. <laughs> but yeah, great stuff. Incredible visuals. Absolutely. Uh, visuals that stick with you. And yes. I think that's the, that's the key to a lot of these really great silent movies. They're telling the story visually. So I think you, since there's nothing else really to grab onto there's no witty lines of dialogue or whatever there's just the visuals so your 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 brain is i think it's more impactful um and when you get a really strong visual it's some like something that you probably will never forget uh unless you're like me getting older and just forgetting like what i have for <laughs> breakfast today um uh mike what's something else about the movie uh that uh you want to point out um, just how visually stunning this was and how, you know, moody it was. It was just an amazing film that, you know, it makes you go, wow, this guy knew what he was doing. The director, I mean, he, he was very masterful at the filming and the scenery and, you know, it was the scenes where, you know, like the woman, the mean woman and the character, she knew right away there was something not right going on. And, mm -hmm. you know, and she was trying to warn everybody and everyone's like, oh, silly woman, don't worry about it and everything. And it's such a trope. But for that to be one of the first ones to do something like that was just amazing and everything. And that's what one of the many things I love about this was, you know, you see this and we're so jaded nowadays with a lot of these type of characters, the shot, then the scenery and the shots. And this is all new back then mm -hmm. and everything. And the, this is just what made it such an amazing film. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned the, the, the sort of the mood because yeah, I've seen, you know, I mean, they paint, sometimes silent movies just like any other genre are painted with such a wide you know a yeah. brush that you, it's like but 
I've seen enough silent movies to know that when this when this starts, you know it's not a Chaplin movie. <laughs> you know it's not oh, a comedy. No. I mean, mm-hmm. just from the like the the shot of the town, like you just you did like this atmosphere is there from uh from the first frame um and you know we mentioned that murnau later on or after this makes faust and that he was interested in dark dark material but it also should be pointed out that when he uh left germany and went to uh hollywood uh 1927 he made a movie called sunrise which some people consider one of the most one of the greatest american movies ever made um and it's a very like uh, it's a movie about relationships. It's a it's a, about love, and it's a visually striking movie. But it's not horror at all. It doesn't. It, it like it's you would not know that the same person made both of these movies. I don't think. Um, uh, so um, yeah, if you're looking for something, you know, completely on the opposite of this by Murnau, uh, Sunrise, 1927 is one that uh, you should definitely check out. Um, other things that are Nosferatu related, um, I think uh, I ha- we have to we have to say, um, uh, oh, what's it called? Come on, Shadows of the Vampire. Shadow yes. of the Vampire with William Shadow Defoe. of the Vampire. Yes, yeah. with oh, William that Defoe. was such a creepy movie too. Yeah, it's about the making of Nosferatu. Kind of, um, kind of sort of <laughs> yeah but it's a in fantasy which, because yeah it's yeah. yeah it's not it's not yeah it doesn't yeah but um so but it is a uh it is a i think it's a fun i think it's like i i look at it as sort of a dark comedy but um yeah. uh especially from defoe's performance because he plays max shrek who uh man max shrek I mean, talk about typecast. I mean, I don't know, like, like, or he's only known for playing a Nosferatu, really. He's not, or Orlock. He's not really known, even though he did several other movies. Yeah. Um, much of many of them don't exist. So, but, um, and and yes, I think if you watch Shadow of the Vampire, you think that he's a nut uh, because William Defoe, the way William Defoe plays him, let's just say he really gets into character. Right. Yeah, Ashley. the The point of the film is is that um, oh, who's the who's the who plays Murnau in it? It's um, uh, Malkovich. Uh, yeah. John Malkovich uh, 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 actually gets a real vampire to make a vampire movie with, and Defoe is really a vampire. But I love Defoe's performance. It's almost like alcoholism. The little bats flying along, and he grabs <laughs> it, bites it, and goes. Sucks the blood of it, throws it on the ground, and goes. I hate my life. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, um, yeah, it's it's pretty. It's uh, it's a pretty wild. Uh, g- uh, it's a great concept movie. You know, things coming out of left field. But um, yeah, um, uh, Warner Herzog uh, made Herzog's a remake, beautiful. and uh, you know, you'd think that. You know why should you make a remake of this? It's one of the greatest movies ever made. Uh, but he, uh, but to Ashley's point, as we talked about, this movie was not readily available for people to see, um, and so uh, I think that I think uh, Herzog felt he was up to the challenge. Um, hires uh, Klaus Kinski, right? Um, yes. Klaus Kinski to play Nosferatu, a uh, very problematic actor, like as we uh, like problematic person, <laughs> uh, but. Uh, Fits the bill. Let's put it this way for Nosferatu. They made uh, 
Kinski made a sequel later on uh, with another director, which is garbage, uh, actually. Yeah, um, somebody but... <laughs> tell me it's good. I'm like, no, it's but not. The, it's not but the remake, uh, what did you say, Mark, 1977? 1979. 1979. Yeah, it's, yeah. Um... It's, it's a, it blows my mind that this came out around the same time as the Frank Langella Dracula, because they're so yeah. completely different. I think I think the theater we saw it at, uh, Linda and I went to see it. At, it was like, okay, we're going to see this, and like the next week we were back there to see Apocalypse Now, which was the brand new film. This is not, does not have the fright factor that the original Nosferatu has. Uh, the Kinski version of the vampire is more sickly. He's more weary. Uh, you can definitely see some stuff, but this does not play on a horror level. It was rated PG. And, uh, you know, it's like a lot of Herzog's films. They're very contemplative and, you know, there's scenes with stuff going on for a very long period of time. But a lot of people love this film, too. But it's very it's in terms of intensity, it's not nearly as intense as the original, but I love it. I think it's great. Mm -hmm. So Yeah. And the same cities and the same places, the photographed in the same spots, you know, which is really kind of a nervy thing to do. You know, it's not as bad as that remake of Psycho, <laughs> where they did it frame by frame or anything. No, 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 no. But uh, it's a great, it's a great film. I recommend it. And and he, let's just say, like his budget, his rat budget was like significantly more because that yeah. there are, I mean, there's a sequence where rats are coming off the ship, and it's like it, it's like it's like they're coming out of the TARDIS. There's just so many rats. Like you're like, how many, like how many fit on there or whatever. And apparently they were, you know, there's probably still rats like somewhere in the city. (laughs) Cause, cause they went everywhere and they, they were not tracked, but, um, uh, but it's a, it's a solid watch as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the original is, is still stands out at the end of the day. It's just a, it's a remake. And the original still stands on its own. Uh, Mike, is there any other uh, Nosferatu-related material that you can think of that uh, you wanted to bring to light? No, it's, you know, he popped up everywhere, especially once he became open property. You saw parodies of him. You saw characters that look like him, even Buffy the Vampire Slayer or, you know, other things. You know, what they do in the shadows has characters like it. You know, anytime you saw the older vampire, guess who he looked like a lot <laughs> of times. And it was it's just interesting. But the, you know, the William Defoe version of the movie, um, for me, it was such a weird, like, oh, my God, a real, he with Max Shrek was a real vampire. Oh, my God. You know, that type of thing. And it was so much fun. But, you know, to, to me, it's like, you know, a lot of people, when they say vampires, they think of Dracula and they think of Bela Lugosi and everything. And it's interesting because for me, when I think of vampires, I think of this. This is what I think of more and everything and he does not sparkle folks i trust you on that one he does not (laughs) i uh that's an interesting thing too too, because i guess it is generational because look i don't know uh and you know i i don't know what generations 
the recent generations think of when they think of when they hear the word Dracula? Do they think of Gary Oldman? Do they think of, you know, who? Like, you know, I don't know. Um, I mean, Bell is still out there as being probably like the face of Dracula. He's the iconic. Uh, He's the yeah, icon. I think Dracula. I think probably most people probably go like think even if they haven't seen it. Yeah. And Nosferatu is one of those things too. Even people not a lot of people have seen it, but yet they recognize the image. Yeah. Um and uh and so uh, it's very um yeah, its influence will still continue on. It's a hundred years old and it's you know, it's still <laughs> It's still, I found it still relevant, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. watching it. I, and I'm not going to say it felt like a modern movie because that's not true, but I could understand it and relate to it in a, in a, in a level, especially post pandemic that mm-hmm. I never could before. Yeah, I'd still put it in as one of the, if not the top three, the top five vampire films of all time. Oh, I agree yeah. with yes, that, Mark. I completely with that. That's yes, so true. Yeah um you know it is yeah uh, it's hard to argue that um yeah. ashley okay so yeah let's uh sort of wrap up ashley what do you have any final thoughts on on watching nosferatu or your experience with that no just again i thought it was a really worthwhile experience uh for me as a film fan to watch a classic movie in a silent movie and just encourage people like don't be afraid to try something a little bit different. I was worried like, oh man, this is an hour and a half, no dialogue. How will it hold people's interests? And yet it does. So yeah, don't be afraid to try something just a little bit different and you might find something cool and gives you appreciation of stories and that you enjoy today that couldn't have been made without some of those historical works. I agree. And I, I do sort of apologize because I know horror is not your thing. So doing these uh, movie reviews, uh, especially as far as your first silent movie, we sh- probably should have broken to lightly, like maybe with a Chaplin movie or a uh, or a uh, Harold Lloyd movie, Buster Keaton, maybe uh, those are uh, those are lighter, but um, those are those are worthwhile as well. And I definitely oh, encourage wonderful. Uh, TCM has a great uh, show on Sundays called Silent uh, Silent Movie Sunday, Sunday and mm-hmm. uh, hosted by Jacqueline Stewart, who's amazing um, and uh, brings a lot a lot of uh, uh, silent movies that I'm that I they are new to me and uh, it's still I think a viable uh, art form in itself. I think. Um, oh yeah. So, uh, and I would love to see. I don't know if it would be possible to get funding for something like a big budget project, but to see like Jordan Peele do a silent horror film, I think that would be really fascinating to see some of the way he uses visuals and characters and storytelling. I would like to see some of my favorite directors take on a little bit of a challenge and what would a modern day silent movie be like? What, what would that look like? I think that would be kind of cool to see. Interesting. Yeah. It would be be like a quiet place. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Maybe. But even more so, completely quiet place. A very completely quiet place. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know about a, a – I know it's not going to be silent, but there is a new version of Nosferatu in, in the making uh, made by um, – it's going to be directed by Robert Eggers. So it should oh, be interesting. interesting. Yeah, with yeah, Bill Skarsgård as Orlock. Hmm. Uh, so like so, he does, he does creepy well. 
<laughs> yeah, he's pretty good. He's pretty good. Yeah, so it'll yeah. be really interesting to see that. Uh, and Anna Taylor Joy, I think, is in it as well. Um, so yeah, I'll be I'll be game for that. That should be interesting. Um, but uh, final thoughts on Knots for at least as far as the podcast goes. Uh, I know we'll continue to watch this and and uh, and learn from it. But Mark, um, the overall um, thing about silent films. Uh, I've seen silent films that have blown me away. Abel Gantz's Napoleon uh, and uh, stuff like that. But when it comes to films, you were saying something at the very beginning of the show about silent films and people not paying attention. And I would recommend heavily that any person who would think that we're talking about Nosferatu, rent, buy, purchase, whatever it takes, uh, Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times. It's extremely funny. We got dumped off at the movie theater as little kids, packed, 500 kids packed into a movie theater, and the parents, as they're leaving, go, it's a silent movie. And we're like, what, what, what does that even mean? And we watched it and walked out of there, and I said, that's one of the funniest films I've ever seen. And I still put it in as, like, the fo- top five or ten. Hilarious about a guy dealing with modern technology and all this kind of stuff. It's beautiful. It's warm. It's thoughtful another one fritz lang's metropolis sure uh and if you feel like you've got a oh my gosh i can't take this then put on the giorgio Moroder <laughs> rock and roll version from the 80s which a lot of people <laughs> still like and i still I do know. Uh-huh. but but watch metropolis uh there's uh watch cabinet of dr caligari Watch another hundred-year-old film. Watch um, uh, the Barrymore, uh, John Barrymore version of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. His thing is really creepy. When he turns into Mister Hyde, it is horrific. His face, his whole face is stretched. Eventually, they end up putting a dome on top of his head. But a lot of it was like the original theatrical play, where during around the time of Jack the Ripper, they thought the guy might be Jack the Ripper because he could distort his face so much on the stage. Barrymore borrowed from that in this film. Um, silent films are wonderful. Um, yeah, there are some stinkers, but you know, the comedies, <laughs> Buster Keaton, Chaplin, all that stuff's wonderful, but don't give up on them. Uh, Nosferatu itself, super classic, uh, very easy to watch. I've shown it to, you know, shown it to my kids. I've shown it to other young people and they go, wow, it's pretty cool. And that's why so many like rock and roll bands, you know, pick out elements out from some of these silent films. I remember mm-hmm. watching a Madonna uh, live concert where the whole thing was Metropolis based. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Watch stuff where Nosferatu's picked up again and again. The rock and roll guys love it. You know, as much as they love their misfits tattoos. There's you know, footage of it in of uh, Under Pressure, the Queen video. Yes, absolutely. So um, don't give up on silent films, people. There's mm-hmm. there's more there than you realize, and cabinet of dr caligari watch it that is a whack film with distorted sets and everything else and it's only 45 minutes so if you think you're gonna get bored <laughs> it's a little longer than gilligan's island so you know have at it uh mike what about you um pretty much this is the standard for silent films for me between this metropolis and you know most of the charlie chaplin films this is you know these are standards. Um, there's so much great stuff out there for silent movies. Um, even go earlier into the early 1900s, like Journey to the Moon or, you know, items like that. And it is 
there's just so much wonderful stuff and folks there's even you know silent cartoons and you know animation that you know definitely check out a lot of people think animation started with disney now folks there was stuff way before walt disney and we've talked about it on the podcast here when we did the history of animation and you know we talked about gertie the dinosaur or we talked about felix the cat we've talked about you know even some of the other stuff you know like so much good stuff out there that you know is silent and in black and white sorry to you know hurt you there folks but black and white stuff is amazing and you know what it's worth checking out and you know please do there's a whole history of film and such that's out there that you should check out and Mm -hmm. spend a lot of time you're going to fall in love all over again with cinema if you do that trust me on that yeah there's uh, uh you know among cinephiles there's a term called pure cinema uh, which, you know, you hope to experience, uh, most cinephiles have experienced on occasion. And that's with the really, really great, great films. And Nosferatu is pure cinema. You have a, it's a pure cinema movie. It's the type of story, the type of thing that you can only experience cinematically. That mm-hmm. doesn't mean you can't watch it on at home, but I mean, it's just like the visuals, uh, the way that the storytelling is. And this is, uh, and, F.W. Murnau was one of the first like creators of, as Ashley pointed out, and many of us have pointed out, um, of the the same tools that are being used today. Mm-hmm. These guys helped develop, and uh, you know. So, but but aside from the importance of the movie, aside from the fact that it's a work of art, it still gets you at a at a at a, at a guttural level. Like it still impacts you and it still is, is a very personal experience. So I strongly suggest everybody out there. I mean, spoilers or not um, to, to check out Nosferatu um, because I don't, you know, it's an experience. It's an experience that um, there's not many like it now. Um, And uh, in a lot of cases, like the, the people that were blown away by it in 1922, you can still be blown away by it in mm-hmm. 2022. Mm-hmm. So, oh, darn straight. Uh, so uh, I have never seen it on the big screen. That's my only like eh, sad moment. One day mm-hmm. I hope to see a really beautiful copy on the big screen. But, but uh, anyway, uh, thank you guys so much for joining us for this discussion. Uh, we'll be right back, and then we're going to close out the show. to live long they have no use for your song you're dead you're dead you're dead you're dead and out of this world Welcome to A Geek Girl's Take. I'm your host, Angela, and this week, this geek girl is talking about Vampire Academy, the new show on Peacock TV. So, Vampire Academy is a new show on the streaming service Peacock, which is based off the YA book series by the same name, written by Rochelle Mead. This show focuses on the main characters, Rose, a Dampier girl who is trained to protect the Morai, a group of vampires who are royals. One of those royals being Rose's best friend, Lissa. This series has a great setting and a really interesting setup. 
since there are also these other vampires called Strigoi who are soulless wild vampires who became like that because they brutally killed people. Those vampires live outside the city walls of the Moroi cities. And as the series goes on, you kind of learn a lot about them. The story follows Rose and Lissa as they find out that they have a psychic bond and both learn about the powers that they have. And also they navigate this world with love relationships and other teenage stuff since this is based off a YA book series. The series so far has been great. It is beautifully shot, the acting is good, and the series has a good round of interesting and inclusive characters that make watching the show not boring at all, since you learn the characters' stories and motives as you go. It airs weekly on Peacock on Thursdays, and so far six episodes are out, and I really hope we get more seasons of this show, since it has been one I really look forward to watching each week, and there are six books. So it kind of makes me think there would be six seasons. I am also happy that Peacock does this as a weekly release, since you get time to think about what happened in each episode instead of binging it all right away, which in my opinion doesn't give you time to think about what's going on in the show and get familiar with the characters. And there are a good deal of interesting characters in Vampire Academy. There are some very annoying ones as well, and kudos to the actors for doing an amazing job of making you dislike some of them. Because, whoa buddy, I know who I am not rooting for by episode 6, and who I kind of want to see go away, because I don't like them. Well, thanks for listening to A Geek Girl's Take. What will I talk about next week? You're going to have to listen to find out. Doctor Who is all about change. For almost 59 years, the show has gone through many regenerations. One thing always consistent is a sense of hope and wonder across all space and time. It's the dawn of a new era, and your friends at our station Who will be here to cover everything to come this year and beyond. Please rate and subscribe to our show wherever fine podcasts are found. So that's going to wrap up another episode of the Earth Station One podcast. I want to thank everybody for joining us tonight. Let's thank our guests. Ashley, you made it through your first silent film. I did, and it was a valuable experience, and I would watch another one. So thank you again, as always, for introducing me to new stuff. And it's never too late to discover something new and try something that you didn't think you would like and discovered that, you know what, maybe you do. Oh yeah, most definitely. And it's just, it's just awesome that we're getting to, you know, introduce you to all this really cool (laughs) stuff on the show and everything. And, you know, we're going to have to think about what our next uh, introduction film is going to be. I think it's my pick next time because this is my Oh, right. Right. So I can probably tell you right now, it is a movie starring Richard Pryor and also starring Gene Wilder. So I think you will have a lot of fun. I this. think you have I think you have five choices just by that. Yeah, I you think do. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's just throw it involves a train. So, <laughs> so I think you'll love seeing Silver Street. And it's Patrick be, McGowan. Yeah. Oh, Patrick McGowan's so many people are in this one. Yeah. It's it is such a good film. I think you'll like it. 
So we'll definitely check that out in a couple months. We'll put, add it to our schedule. I think we're just going to call the segment Education Ashley. Educating <laughs> <Yeah>. Ashley. <laughs> yeah. I think I've but. seen a lot of movies, but then you know what? There's so much great stuff out there. Like even when you think you've seen a lot, there's a lot still to discover. Oh, I have like a dozen <laughs> I want to show you. So it's okay. So it's perfect. Ashley, anything you want to shout out about? Um, no, just again. Uh, yeah, folks try something new that you wouldn't necessarily watch ordinarily. And yeah, even if just pick one film and expand your cinematic selection a little bit. And I think you'd be glad you did. That is awesome. That is truly, truly awesome. And Mr. Mark Maddox, always wonderful to see you, my friend. Thank you, sir. Great to be here. I appreciate it. Halloween. Ooh, spooky ooky. Ooh, are you guys doing your party this year? Oh, absolutely. We're doing our, uh, every Saturday before Halloween, we do one every year. So we're going to, we've got to go in the lights are out in the yard. Even while we were doing the show, I could hear kids out there yelling and screaming, looking at our lights. That's probably, awesome. Probably that's telling awesome. us, hey, that's going to cost you a lot for that utility bill, pal. Mm-hmm. Well, so, yeah. yeah. People sit around outside of Mark's house and look at the uh, electrical box watching and go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, tomorrow, tomorrow, uh, uh, Linda, it's Linda's birthday. We're taking out to dinner. She's got a 12 foot tall skeleton sitting in a giant box in the garage <laughs> to add to her collection of stuff. And she keeps saying, what is that? She already knows what it is, but she goes, what is that? Why don't you tell me what it is? I said, it's a Vespa. That's awesome. So, that is awesome. And all of her friends collect Vespa, so she so she's like, really? Uh, no, she knows what it is already. So she tomorrow is the twelve foot skeleton and a bunch of spooky town stuff. She loves the spooky town stuff. So we'll we have we have a neighbor um, about a mile from here. They actually have one of the twelve foot skeletons, and they put put it along the main road in uh-huh. their backyard, and they decorate it for her season. And they oh, sort of oh, keep it up funny. on, you know. So right now, of course, it's up for Halloween. But they do like St. Patrick's Day. They dress them as a <laughs> leprechaun. Fourth of July, they dress them as Uncle Sam. You oh, know, that's, that's pretty right. funny. It is pretty awesome. And so, yeah, it's you, there's going to be a ton of things you guys could do with that. Oh, yeah, so, she's going to be awesome. happy. You yeah. can have it climbing on your roof or something like that. <laughs> yeah, that would be kind of sure. cool. Anything you want to shout out about? Uh, just, um, things are going good. New, new issue of Scream magazine is going to come out here in the next month. I've got a couple of, uh, fairly famous films. I do the one for, uh, which basically ends up in the books a million and the Barnes and Noble. Uh, and then there's the one that's more for like through diamond. That's more for the comic shops. It's the same issue, but, uh, both of those will have different covers. I can't say what it is because my, the guy that publishes the magazine, likes to usually premiere it at Chiller Theater, the convention up in New Jersey. Uh, sometime in the next couple of weeks, he'll be premiering it, and then it goes to the national bookstores and stuff. So that's happening. Other than that, everything's great. But Scream awesome. 40, which has a uh, cover story of Nosferatu, 100 Years of Terror, with your beautiful cover, um, that's available now. I am to please. And Mr. Mike Gordon, we made it through another one, my friend. We did. The countdown continues. And as always, it's my pleasure. Anything you want to shout out about, sir? 
uh, as people are listening to this, last weekend was Monsterama Jr. Um, uh, we are recording this ahead of time, so I'm going to assume we had a blast, uh, or I had a blast. So, <laughs> um, but I will say, um, relevant to our interest, even if you weren't able to attend the convention uh, in person, there was a lot of virtual panels uh, that we recorded or were recorded. I was uh, honored to be on one of them in particular called not always sexy but they have teeth the evolution of cinema vampires so if you're interested in nosferatu and cinema vampires that uh were influenced by nosferatu uh check it out i'm uh, uh kyle mitchell uh was the ho was the moderator and lev butts and michael g williams uh joined me as well on the panel we had a great time talking all about uh, various cinematic vampires uh, over the years. So um, I will put a link to that in the show notes uh, so that people can check it out. Will I see you there, Mike, next? uh, I'll be there. Yeah. Good. I'll see you there. Then we'll see you. I'll be there Saturday. Cool. Yep. Yes. As you're talking to future guys, you know, future men. (laughs) (laughs) I was there, Mark. (laughs) where were you okay okay mike okay (laughs) so that's very awesome all right and for me my shout out you know i was debating what i was going to shout out about um you know with all the different horror stuff um that's on tv right now and the movies everywhere it's you know it's halloween and there's so many cool different things You know, I want to recommend, you know, a series that, you know, we just finished, I think, the fourth season of already. Um, It's called What We Do in the Shadows. It's an amazing, amazing show on FX. And it's, you know, and then, of course, it's on Hulu if you get a chance. And it is an amazing show based off a movie that's a couple years old now. And it's a ton of fun. And you'll see so many parodies and of so many different horror genres and stuff in the show, but it makes it. Including Orlock. Oh, Orlock is definitely in it. And boy, what they do to that character in this series. It's pretty, (laughs) it's very, very interesting. So I definitely would recommend to, you know, if you have a chance to get to watch it, if you haven't yet, it's, you know, it's, it's really smart and it's a ton of fun. So at the same time, so definitely worth checking out. So, Mr. Mike Gordon, what are we going to be talking about next week? Well, we're going to be talking. It's another anniversary episode, uh, but we're only we're not going back 100 years. We're going only back 60 years. uh, And we're going to talk about the 60th anniversary of Sabrina, the Teenage Witch, who started in the comics, but has had has success in cartoons and not not just one, but two different live action uh, shows. So uh, we'll have some great guests to talk all about Sabrina. Very cool. It's going to be a lot of fun to do. And, you know, folks, we definitely would love to hear from you guys at home. Please write us feedback at station1.com. It's always a great way to get in touch with us. And as always, as we like to say, thanks for listening to the Earth Station One podcast. We're powered by NSC. You can find them at nsclivetv.com. Remember, you could also find Earth Station One wherever fine podcasts are found. And now Earth Station One can be found in video format on YouTube. Please subscribe and tell all your friends about us. Yep, we're not too proud. And we actually got a piece of feedback already from Ashley's dad saying that she's the best part of the videos. Oh, so, shout out to dad. Thank he, you. He's not, he's not wrong. 
no, oh, so nope. he might be a little biased, but <laughs> that's pretty cool. On behalf of myself, Mike Faber, Mike Gordon, of course, and of course, Ashley Pauls and Mark Maddox. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you here next time on the Earth Station One podcast. Be safe, have fun, and you know what? Stay spooky. <laughs> Happy Halloween. And we'll see you soon. Peace. We are done. You've been listening to the Earth Station One podcast, a show by fans for fans. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to our show up on iTunes or wherever fine podcasts are found. While you're up there, please rate us and remember to leave feedback. It would greatly be appreciated. And remember to tell your friends all about us while you're at it. Earth Station One is available on most social media sites where you can join some really great topics or chats. Help support our show by shopping through our Amazon.com link or purchasing very cool ESO Network clothing and merchandise at our T Public store. Links to both are found on the top of our ESO Network webpage. Become a patron of the ESO Network by backing us up on Patreon for as little as 25 cents a week. Go to patreon.com slash ESO Network to sign up. We want to hear from you. Please write us at earthstation1 at esonetwork.com or call us at 404-963-9057. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time here on the Earth Station One podcast. Peace, and we're done. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.